All right, good evening, everybody. Appreciate you being with us now, and I'm going to ask you to open to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to jump right into this tonight. We have a lot of ground to cover. And forgive me, I was going to uh, have you request songs, but I don't think my voice is going to hold up to that. So I'm uh, going to forego that. But we're going to start in Matthew 13, verse 44, if you'd like to turn there. Matthew 13, verse 44. And if you bow your heads with me, let's begin tonight with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege tonight to gather around the Word of God. And Lord, not only to uh, be able to teach this book tonight, Lord, but to learn from it. It's such a great privilege. I don't want to take it for granted. Thank you for this opportunity. Lord, please meet with us, each individual, each couple, as they're putting, putting aside time in their schedule to become more familiar with you and your word. Lord, please bless those efforts. Help us tonight to grow in our knowledge of you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I normally see more hellos, so I think this thing has frozen. I'm going to restart it, and then we're going to get into the lesson, so I'll be right back. All right, Matthew 13, verse number 44. There we are. All right, we're continuing with the parables, <clears throat> and uh, Jesus says here, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth. So he finds this treasure in the field. Once he's found it, he hides that treasure somewhere in the field. And for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. Now, all of these parables relate to the kingdom of heaven, but they all have a unique perspective on it. They all teach us something I don't think that, that the Jews or that people had considered previously. And this parable, I believe, gives us something quite unique. Uh, the treasure, if I'm understanding it correctly, Jesus did not explain these next three parables. So much like the mustard seed and the leaven, it's left up to us to compare Scripture with Scripture. We don't want to get into private interpretations, uh, but at the same time, we have to do the best we can uh, uh, to, to, to stay scriptural in our interpretation here. Uh, the treasure, if you look at the other parables, I would say is it, it, it equals the children of the kingdom. Now, I've heard it taught that the treasure is Israel as a nation, and there's a decent reason to say that. In Exodus 19, verse 5, the nation of Israel, God said that they were His peculiar treasure. So there's a biblical reason to interpret it that way. But because Jesus has just mentioned in the parable before this, <clears throat> he explained the parable of the uh, tares and the wheat. He explained that the wheat, the good seed, are the children of the kingdom. You can see that in verse number 38. So they are in the field, right? The field is the world. So I'm taking what Jesus has just explained and plugging it into to verse 44, the treasure would probably equal the children of the kingdom, whether that's Jew, Gentile, whoever it is, the people that are entering into the kingdom. So the good seed, they are still in the field, right? They are all over the world. God has His people everywhere. And what the Lord did when He found people that were of a, uh, a repentant heart, right? Rather than take them out of the world, John chapter 17, Jesus says, I'm not gonna take you out of the world. You disciples are still going to be here, so you're in the world, but not of the world, right? Uh, what Jesus did is He went and purchased the field, not just the treasure. He purchased the whole field. So here's what's unique about it. We know that Jesus bought and paid for us, our, our redemption. However, Jesus also redeemed nature through what He did on the cross. We, I talked about this not too long ago in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is speaking about how one day nature's curse will be lifted and they will ex nature will experience the glorious liberty uh, much like the children of God will one day. So it looks as if what Jesus did on the cross not only removes the curse of mankind's sin but also the curse of nature. 
And we know that when Jesus comes again, he does renovate and, let's say, regenerate uh, the earth. So I, I, I think that's what he's getting at. When you read in the book of Psalms, you might remember this, chapter 95, 96, up to 99, several times in there where the psalmist says, when, when the Messiah comes, that, he, that the trees will clap their hands. It talks about the field being joyful. It talks about the sea roaring. And those elements of nature are, are somewhat uh, personified in those psalms. Now, you can say that it's just poetic speaking and, and uh, you know, just a fancy literary style, which I agree that it is. But there might be something a little more to it, that nature, not, not that nature actually has hands and, and a voice like humanity, but that nature will respond to its creator coming back and lifting that curse. But I, I, th I think that's the most scriptural way to approach this, that the treasure, those are the good seed, the children of the kingdom, hidden in the field. Jesus buys the field, and uh, therefore when he comes back, he not only inherits the people, but also the entire earth, nature as well. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Notice the plural who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it." Now, he's looking for goodly pearls. He finds one pearl of great price, and he's looking just for pearls, but he finds a very special one. He sells all that he has and buys it. I believe what we're looking at here, th this I think is rather simple in its application, but also amazing at the same time. Most people, when I hear them teach on this, they'll say that the pearl of great price is the church because in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And it is true that Jesus did die to redeem his bride, his church. So that's, I, I can appreciate that approach. But he was seeking goodly pearls. I'm going to say that those pearls are precious souls. And when he found one, he sold everything and bought it. Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. I think it gets personal. Paul said it like this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I believe there's a personal aspect to this, that each individual that enters the kingdom, they do so because Jesus forsook everything. He left heaven. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. He went from the very top to the very bottom, and he shed his blood. He laid down his life to purchase me as an individual. I believe each precious soul is that pearl of great price. Now, as I said, if you want to look at it as, as a corporate thing, referring to the church as one entity, and then maybe you can talk about the nation of Israel as a separate entity and think of those two things as, as separate gems, right? Two different pearls. I understand the corporate approach, but I, I think the personal approach will also fit there. Either way, I believe the merchant man, we can safely say, is, is Christ, it's the Messiah, and he gave everything up. It, it, I think a good cross-reference is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So he gave up everything so we could have uh, everything that he wanted to offer. All right, verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind." Right, this net. Here the, the kingdom is likened unto a net. I believe this is going to go with the message that was being preached. This net that is thrown out is meant to catch fish, obviously, fisherman's net, and the, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I understand if you want to move this and, and into the church age and apply it, right, just the practical aspect of it, we throw out the gospel net. We invite people to Christ and, and uh, try to bring in as many souls as we can. But let's not forget the context. We are dealing with the kingdom of heaven, 
and that kingdom offer that Jesus and the apostles were giving the people at that time. So the gospel of the kingdom is preached. Repent, the kingdom's at hand. Now, the net goes out. Notice in verse 47, and it gathers of every kind. Well, the kinds, as you're going to see in verse 48, are it's good and bad, those two kinds. So verse 48, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. I guess you could think of the kinds as different kinds of fish, and then whichever among those various kinds of fish, the good fish they kept, the bad they, they, uh, they cast away. I, I think at the, at, at the end of the day, what we really have to consider here and what Jesus is, is showing us, that the gospel message goes out and touches everyone. Everyone needs to hear it. Now, we see this in many places. Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the gospel of, of the kingdom being preached to, to every nation. Um, now, that has some tribulation, that, some prophetical aspects to it, and we'll talk about that when we get to Matthew 24. But also Matthew 28, Go ye therefore teach all nations. Mark 16, uh, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So the net, right, the gospel net brings all people to Christ. Now, doesn't save them all, right? Not all fish, not everybody that gets touched by the net gets saved because, and we're going to see this phrase uh, at least two times in the book of Matthew further on, many are called, but few are chosen. You see, the calling, it demands a response. And this we've been talking about in Romans. Garrett touched on it in Ephesians as well. Uh, we do have some responsibility in this matter. God will do His part. He will make the knowledge of Himself and of salvation available to mankind. He gives mankind access and a way back to Him. He invites people. He draws them. He calls them. He teaches them. But then that person has to respond to that gospel net that's been thrown. So when the kingdom arrives, the people that have properly responded to the, to the message and have been drawn to Christ by that net and accepted it, they get to enter into the kingdom, but the bad are cast away. Uh, verse 49, so shall it be at the end of the world. Now this helps us tremendously because it, back in verse 40, Jesus already explained the end of the world and how the wheat and tares, right, the tares will be gathered and burned and then the the wheat, those are the children of the kingdom, they enter in and shine. So the same thing's going on in verse 49. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. We talked about that already in um, last week's lesson. And we're going to see this again, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, we're going to see how the angels are involved in the second coming. And even beyond that, there are further activities that the angels will help with the separating. And so we'll, we'll see that more in the future. All right, verse 51, Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? Now that's, I think every Bible teacher um, from time to time does this. We stop and say, do you get it? Do you understand? I was talking with Christina today about some of the challenges that I've been facing uh, because of live streaming. And it's, it's taken a decent amount of adjustment. I've learned a lot, to be honest, um, having to do the sermons and the lessons through this format. And I really appreciate all the lessons that God has, has taught me. I hope He continues to teach me. But one of the challenges is I cannot see your faces. And if I'm teaching in a classroom setting, I can see that maybe one of my points didn't come across clearly. I can see it on people's faces that they're confused. Maybe a hand will go up and then it's obvious that there's a question. But with this format, and especially with the chat section often failing, I, I, don't, I can't tell if everything's landing where it ought to. But if you ever have the chance to teach or even to preach, feel free to use uh, this method, from time to time you can stop and ask, does everybody understand? Um, in, in Malawi, uh, phew, I don't know how many times I would say this in one sermon, at least a hundred times a sermon it felt like, I would say, tirilimozi, tirilimozi, tirilimozi. Tili means 
we are, but in this way I was asking it as a question. So are we? Tili limozi, are we one? Tili limozi, are we one? Are we together? I would constantly be asking that because, mainly because of my Chichewa abilities, when I was first learning the language and started to preach in that language, I would, I would often doubt myself if I was using the correct word. Um, here in South Africa, if the day ever comes that I preach in Afrikaans, expect a lot of verstanjela, verstanjela, because that's going to happen quite a bit. Now that's the question. Verstanjela, all von Hiridinge, do you understand all these things? And they say in the hymn, Yea, Lord. You know, I have no doubt that Matthew is reporting this story truthfully, that that was the answer that they gave. I don't know. Did, did they really understand all of the parables perfectly? Man, if they did, I would like to think that Jesus might have said more, right, during this class <laughs> that he was teaching dur during this lesson that would help them understand it. Because based on what we have, man, it's hard to understand some of these things. But they said yes, they, they, they got it. And that leads to the next parable. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder. Now, one thing I'll caution you of. When you read this, this parable is not about the kingdom of heaven itself. You see, all the other ones were. This one is about the scribe who is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven. So a scribe is somebody who's busy about books. He, he's a bookish guy. He studies books. He reads. Anybody, right? Any Christian. We, even Muhammad had this part right. He called Christians people of the book. We are supposed to be busy about the 66 books of the Bible. So it would be right to call the disciples of Christ scribes. We are supposed to search the scriptures daily. That, that type of thing. If you are instructed unto the kingdom of heaven, so you understand how the kingdom works, you know what the Old Testament says about it, you understand what Jesus revealed about it, then he says, You are like unto a householder which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. So this householder, now remember, he's the scribe. The householder has a treasure. What would be the scribe's treasure? His books. You see it behind me, the library. That's his treasure. What's he going to be able to pull out? Things new and old. So if I understand this one correctly, this parable, somebody who understands the concept of the kingdom, especially the kingdom of heaven, because a lot of confusion comes in on that subject. But if you do understand it, then you can go back and look at what has been revealed in the Old Testament and, and you'll get it, right? You'll pull the old things out of the treasure chest but then also the new things that are being revealed, especially as Jesus is teaching these things. He's showing them the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So there were various aspects about the kingdom that the Jews, as I mentioned last week, had either ignorantly ignored, right? They willingly ignored them, uh, or things that hadn't been revealed yet about the kingdom. So these new things, and I think because God does progressively reveal truth, it's not as if we need to add anything to the Bible, but I do think that as time goes on, God might allow students of the Bible, those that study to show themselves approved, God might reveal certain things out of the Scripture that He's already given us. You know, He'll put this and that and the other verse together, and people say, wow, I, I've never considered all of that together and possibly offer further understanding. Now, the reason I, I say that Revelation 10 talks about thunders, and when they thundered, John was about to write it down, but then God told him not to. I believe that there are certain things that God will reveal, especially during that tribulation time, for the believers living in that specific uh, horrible period, certain things they need to know. And God said, don't, don't write it down now, but somebody's going to hear it. Somebody's going to hear those thunders. So I believe that truth progressively gets revealed, and that's why you have some old things, some, some new things. Uh, can I have you turn to Deuteronomy 20, uh, 29? Deuteronomy chapter 29. Let me show you an interesting verse. 
Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. I cannot tell you how many times I have answered a Bible question with Deuteronomy 29, 29. You'll see why. Those of you that maybe God will call you into the ministry and you'll have people asking you Bible questions, don't hesitate to use this verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Amen. So what is that leaven in the three meal? I, man, I think there's some secret stuff to that. What about that seed in the mustard tree? Well, we use Scripture to try to fill in some of the blanks, but yeah, there are some things where you just throw your hands up and say, well, I'm just not sure. Especially prophetic things, right? We look through the glass darkly. So the secret things belong unto the Lord, our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So I think even Moses realized that truth will be progressively revealed. Not all of God's secrets were revealed through Moses. And we know that, right? Later on, the prophets added to it. Jesus came and gave the mysteries of the kingdom. Paul comes and offers us the mysteries of the body of Christ. So truth little by little is, is revealed. If you don't understand the way God operates in both the political kingdom, that's the kingdom of heaven, and the spiritual kingdom, that personal one, the, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, if you don't understand how God operates there, then there's, it's going to be, I don't want to say difficult, but impossible to, to understand things that have previously been revealed and anything that God might uh, reveal as time goes on. All right, verse 53. Before we get into that, let me just give you a quick overview of these parables. I'm going to work backwards, okay? Forgive me. That's just how I made the list. You can turn it around on your own if you'd like. Let me just give you the, 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 the major points that we learn from each parable. And, and trust me, there's more than one lesson in each parable. I, I understand that. But here's the major things that I, uh, that I found. So working backwards... If you want to start with the net, the, the uh, parable of the net, that the kingdom is selective. That when we talk about the kingdom, you have to see it as selective. Not everybody enters in. Going one back from that, that the kingdom is something very precious. It costs the Lord everything. Uh, the one going back from that, the treasure hid in the field, it's universal. It's worldwide. You can find God's people everywhere. Uh, that would have been something new, right? At that time... The Jews wouldn't have considered that to be a fact. Uh, it, going one back, looking at the parable of the tares and the wheat, that's what Jesus explained. The, God, the uh, kingdom can be imitated. Right? The devil sows a bad seed, and it looks much like the wheat. So it can be imitated. Therefore, you must be discerning. And going one back from that, um, the woman hiding the, the leaven in the measures of meal... <laughs> I put here, the kingdom is mysterious. Something hidden, it's not easily revealed. You have to dig for it. Um, you may have to consume the meal. You may have to get into that bread. I, I, that parable boggles me. So I'm going to say there's an aspect of the kingdom that is mysterious. And then the next one, the mustard seed. It defies expectations. The, the way people, the way the Jews thought the kingdom would be, it was far greater than they even imagined. And then the first parable of, in that chapter, the kingdom is conditional. As the preacher, as the Son of Man, gave the Word of God, sowed the seed on the ground, notice there was nothing wrong with the seed. The seed was fine. God will do His part, and He'll do it well. The difference was the ground. So when it comes to entering the kingdom, and bearing fruit and everything that goes with it, uh, it's conditional on the ground that the, that the seed falls on. All right, so those are the various things you can take from the parables. Now, verse number 53. He says here, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, He departed thence. And when He was come into His own country, so that will be Capernaum, He taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? So they're amazed, they're astonished at his words and at his works. Uh, the same should be true of you. You should have both. 
But as Jesus is teaching, the people in the crowd are just blown away. How does this guy know all this stuff? And what really blew their minds is, is not so much that, that he knew these deeper things. And other prophets in the Old Testament performed miracles. Now, granted, Jesus was doing many more. He was prolific with his uh, ministry of miracles, and he was doing greater miracles than anybody. However, the people of Israel knew it wasn't completely unheard of for a prophet to stand and say, thus saith the Lord, and explain deep things and do miracles. But you have to combine it with the rest of the story. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brethren James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? You know what blew their mind is that Jesus was a nobody. Nobody expected this from him. He, as Isaiah 53 says, he was a root out of dry ground, growing out of dry ground. In Isaiah 53, the next verse after that says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So the, the general public, right, amazed at what he was saying and doing, but they couldn't get behind him because they said, but he, he doesn't come from a king's palace. He's not commissioned by any government authority. He doesn't have any PhD. He doesn't come from a university classroom. In John chapter 7, they asked the question, uh, how does this guy know letters? How did he get educated? So they're looking into his qualifications. Does he have a degree? And, you know, where does he come from? Is his family rich and famous? Then they would have said, oh, yeah, we would expect something great. But because of his humble beginnings, they said, ah, how, how, can we, how can we trust this? Now, if you're a rational person, you realize that that is a silly, a, a, a very foolish way to approach the subject. What does somebody's social status, what does somebody's educational background have to do with the truth of what they're saying and doing? Judge the person by what they're saying and doing, not by where they come from or how many PhDs they have, or who they're connected with, or who their mom and dad was. Listen, if what he's saying is right, it's right. If what he's doing is right, it's right. I saw this once in Malawi. I was at a, a restaurant with Ashbad, the first pastor I trained there. Him and I were sitting eating pizza together and just chatting, and a group of Americans walked into this, this uh, little, it was like a cafe. They walked in about, I don't know, eight or nine of them. They were with the Peace Corps. And they sat down, they made their order, and Ashbed and I finished up. We were about to go. And I had gospel tracks with me, and I was planning on my way out to offer these other Americans some tracks. Ashbed, ever the soul winner, he beat me to it. He went right over to that table and started handing out these gospel tracks and started asking these Americans, Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? And these Americans turned up their nose, and they didn't make fun of him, right? But you could tell that they would not allow a Malawian to try to explain something to them. Now, part of this, I think, is it's, it's a trouble with Americans in general, this, uh, this pride that goes with, hey, we're, we are this great nation. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. That, that's a whole other issue I'm not going to dive into, but that is certainly a fault that you find. But who cares if it's an American, if it's South African and Malawian? If it's true, it's true, right? I, I, I'm sure it's happened in this country that we've had black folks in our church that have tried to witness to white folks, and that white person won't listen, not because this black guy is saying anything wrong, but because he's black. That's just foolish. That's just silly. Now, it's a shame that it is that way, but it's a, it's a fact of life, but it's, it's a bad fact. It's a fact that needs to be changed. But that's why they wouldn't accept Jesus. He didn't have the right background, the right social status. He made himself with no reputation, and the people, they couldn't get behind somebody with no reputation. Verse 57, it says, And they were offended in him. They, they said, Man, this man has wisdom. He has mighty works. And we're offended, all because of the social status. 
But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. Again, it's true. What Jesus said there is true. It's a sad truth. It's sad that that is true, but it is true. You take a prophet out of his country, send him to a different place. You send that man, missionary, send him somewhere else. The people say, oh, wow, look, you came all the way over to here. Oh, and they'll show you respect. Boy, I saw that when I went to India especially. Whew, man, those people were so appreciative of somebody coming a, across you know, an ocean or two to, to visit them. But then you, you, take, you take myself. I go back to America. Boy, they treat me very differently. <laughs> that whole level of respect and thankfulness and, hey, we appreciate you preaching the gospel to us. I'm just another American to them. And I've seen the, tr the same thing in my own house with my dad, right? He loves me. I, th this is not, I'm not faulting him, but he sees me as his son, not as a preacher. My own family, Megan, Caleb, Amy, I, first of all, I'm dad, right? And, and then they, they recognize that I'm a preacher. They don't deny that. And they're not offended at it. Uh, some people struggle with that much more than others. So I'm, I'm not complaining in the slightest. But it's true. They see me as dad, not just pastor. Uh, Jesus is experiencing that same problem. His own family, while he was on the earth before his resurrection, none of his brethren or sistren, none of his family, his uh, brothers and sisters, knew who he was or appreciated who he was. His mother did. Mary was a believer, but the rest of them were offended at him. Verse 58, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, it's not as if Jesus' power is limited by our faith. The expression of His power could be limited by our lack of faith. But it's not as if the more faith I have, the more power He gets. You understand? Uh, Jesus didn't do mighty works there because they didn't deserve it. He, had, he, he didn't do many. He had done some. Right? We, we saw that in verse number 54. He had done some. But he didn't do a lot because after he reaches out and tries to show these people something and they turn up their noses to it, he says, okay, well, listen, I tried. He, he takes his own advice. They don't receive him. You knock the dust off your shoes and you go to the next town, which is exactly what Jesus did. All right, that brings us to chapter 14. Uh, let me give you the outline quickly. You might have already seen it on the WhatsApp group. Chapter 14 breaks into four parts. Part number one. Verses 1 to 12, verses 1 to 12, demise of John the Baptist. The demise of John the Baptist. Verses 13 to 21, part 2, desert outreach. Desert outreach, which I needed all of these to start with D. So this is the feeding of the 5,000, but desert outreach. Part 3, verses 22 to 33, disciples in a storm-driven ship. Disciples in a storm-driven ship. And again, I needed a D, but this is Jesus walking on the water. And then the last part of the chapter, verses 34 to 36, diseased healed in Gennesaret. Diseased healed in Gennesaret. All right, chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Now, you, as you might expect, it would be much worse in today's world because of technology and social media. But Jesus had been around. He'd been up in the north, down in the south. He'd done miracles and preached all over. People were constantly, I mean, society was buzzing with what do you think about Jesus? Good guy? Is he a bad guy? Do you think he's one of the prophets come back from the dead? Whatever. People had different opinions. Uh, look quickly at chapter 16, verse 13. Now, of course, we'll study this more in depth later, but Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Well, Herod was one of them. Some, Elias, they thought he was Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, we would say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So there were lots of ideas. 
Now we're going to focus in on Herod's theory. Herod's theory was that John the Baptist, whom Herod had put to death, had come back from the dead and was now manifesting himself in this man called Jesus. And that's why Jesus had this, this great power to do all these mighty works is because he had come back from the dead. Of course, that was just Herod's theory. It was fueled by a guilty conscience because he had John the Baptist put to death. And now we're going to get that story in chapter 14. So let's go back to that. Chapter 14, verse 3. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Now history, there are history books that confirm this fact that Philip and Herodias were married and then Herod took Herodias as his wife. Verse 4, John rebuked him for it. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. Man, that's how a preacher ought to do it. You shoot straight with him, right? John's not being rude. He's just being honest. And even if it's the king, right? Just because you're a king, president, ruler, whatever, God's no respecter of persons. Adultery is adultery. It's wrong at every level of society. So John shoots straight with him. It is not lawful for thee to have her. And verse 5, And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Now, as we are going to see, well, even in verse 3, you've already seen it. He put him in prison for Herodias' sake. Herod actually feared John. You read this in Mark chapter 6. He feared John because he knew that John was a just man and, and holy. Herod actually appreciated, as best I can see, he appreciated what John said because deep down Herod knew it was right. The problem with Herod is that he had no spine. His wife, she was greatly offended that this man, how dare he say that about me, regardless of how true the statement was. So Herodias wanted John dead. And Herod, the spineless jellyfish that he was, is going to do whatever his wife tells him to do because he can't bear to have an unhappy wife. Furthermore, in verse 5, he feared the multitude. Herod, man, he is a classic politician. The fear of man brings a snare. He is going to do whatever his constituency tells him to do, right? The people that vote for him. Whatever they want me to do, I'll do. They, a lot of those people thought John was a, a prophet, a good man. So Herod said, okay, my wife wants him dead, but if I kill him, then I'm not, I'm going to lose the favor of the public. So I can't go that far. I'll just keep him in prison. He, he's trying the best he can to make everybody happy. You know how that turns out. Uh, verse 6, But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. I've heard a lot of people say that there was something sensual about this dance. I, the Bible never insinuates that. <clears throat> there might have been, but as best we can see, at the very least, she was a good performer. She danced well. She pleased Herod. Now, as you can read in other Gospels, Everybody that was at the birthday party liked this dance. Verse 7, Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. Now this is bravado. This is Herod trying to show off his power by making this extravagant promise. Again, you can read in Mark's Gospel where Herod said, I'll give you up unto half of my kingdom for a dance? Right? The, the dance didn't deserve that. This is Herod just trying to show off how powerful he, he was. Furthermore, another problem with politics, nepotism. Nepotism. You understand what that is. Nepotism is when a, p a politician shows favor to his friends or family by giving them you know, a certain tender or a position in the government or a job or whatever it is, a piece of land, simply because they're related to him somehow. That's nepotism. That's a little bit of what's going on here. You understand, Herod didn't stand to lose much. If he gives her half the kingdom, it's still within his family, so he's not really sacrificing much, but it sounds good when he says it. Verse 8, And she, being before instructed of her mother, boy, Herodias, that must have been some evil witch of a woman. <laughs> she instructed her, her daughter, 
to, to ask for this specifically. Wow. Being before instructed of her mother said, give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. A charger is a large tray, a serving tray. So, quite literally, Herodias got John's head on a platter. Wow. Herod didn't think that through, right? He, he opened himself up for that. It almost makes me wonder that while they're at their birthday party and Herodias' daughter is dancing, maybe Herodias leaned over and whispered in Herod's ear, hey, why don't you show how powerful you are by, by making this offer? I wonder if she wasn't behind that somehow. But Verse 9, And the king was sorry. So you see, deep down, Herod knew that John doesn't deserve to die. The king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake. And them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. He couldn't lose face in front of the crowd. He'd already said this now to renege on it and go back. Oh, he's going to look foolish. So he can't stand to have, to have that public humiliation. Better to kill the preacher than to lose face, than to lose any sense of your reputation, which is so incredibly sad. Now, this is where some very good preaching could be done because there are a lot of people, right? There are a lot of Herods out there. There are a lot of Herodiases out there as well. Uh, driving their men to these horrible conclusions. So verse 10, He sent and beheaded John in the prison, and his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. All I can think there is disgusting. What? Man, what a family, right? I, I, I heard a preacher one time use this passage for a sermon. It was a guy named Danny Castle, very good preacher. And he said that uh, Herodias took the head home and, on that charger and put it up on their mantle, right? So there's John's head in their, in their sitting room over their fireplace. And every evening when Herod would go to, to sit down in that sitting room, there's that head of John the Baptist. And he said every now and then that John's mouth would start to move and say, it's not lawful for thee to have her. It's not lawful for thee to have her. <laughs> now, obviously that didn't happen, but he's talking about you know, his sermon was about how a guilty conscience will continually remind you of what you've done wrong. Um, he was quite creative in, in coming up with that. But what a trophy, right? What a trophy. It's sad, but it still happens today. People think that by cutting down the preacher and by gossiping about him, making him look bad, somehow they've won some sort of victory. They're proud of themselves. See, ah, oh, man, I showed that preacher something. Really? By taking his metaphorical head off? That's... That's not a victory. Verse 12, And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now, it says in verse 13, When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by a ship into a desert place apart. Uh, just hold your place here. Quickly come back to Matthew 4. Look at verse 12 with me. Matthew 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. So there's a bit of a precedent here. John was thrown into prison. We have the backstory to that in Matthew 14. And now back in Matthew 14, if you want to come back to it, uh, the disciples came, they buried John, they gave him a proper and honorable burial, and then they told Jesus what had happened. Jesus, rather than sticking around and trying to stand up for John and you know, defend the man's honor, he realizes there's, there's a greater work to be done. It's not that Jesus was ashamed of John. We know that he wasn't. Back in chapter 11, Jesus said great things about John. But there's, there's another job to do. There's a more important thing than John, and that is I have to be about the Father's business. So Jesus moves on. Furthermore, he's, he's going to avoid any backlash or trouble that might come with being associated with John. So verse 13, he departs... Um, thence by ship into a desert place <clears throat> apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. So several different cities um, converge on this one point. Verse 14, And when Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. Uh, you also read in Mark chapter 6, not only did he heal their sick, but he also taught them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. Uh, so there's a spiritual and a physical aspect to Jesus ministering to this great multitude. 
Now, I really encourage you to go read Mark 6 as you study this chapter. We don't have time to go back and forth tonight, but Mark, 6, Mark chapter 6 gives you a lot more detail about what happened. The disciples had just come back from a preaching trip, and Jesus said, you guys haven't had a break in a while. Let's go out in the desert and take a break. And as they're going out to the desert, all these people converge, and Jesus says, man, I can't turn them down. So he starts preaching and teaching and healing, and then it ends up in this story, verse 15. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place. So there's no um, restaurants or cafes. There's no grocery stores nearby. This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals, something to eat. Verse 16, But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. So this story we're going to be talking about now is the feeding of the 5,000. Interestingly enough, there are two stories that you find in all four Gospels. Now, I, I might be missing one. I, I've tried to be careful as I read through to, to check this. So please uh, feel free to correct me if you've seen some, some other story like this. But the story of the death, burial, and resurrection, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all tell that story. The only other story that is in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. So I don't know exactly how much there is to this story. It, let me say it like this. There might be something more to it because God put it in all four Gospels. Maybe there's a lot, something real deep to this. But in any event, it's, it's a great miracle in, in and of itself. Uh, it says in verse number 17, And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. Now in John's Gospel, you find out that it was a little boy, a lad, that had the five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus had an you know, a conversation with his disciples. What are we going to do? Proving them to see what answer they would give. Verse 18, he said, bring them hither to me. Five loaves and two fishes compared to 5,000 families is nothing. And if I might offer you a practical application to this, you might look at what you have to offer the Lord and think, I have nothing to offer. Nothing substantial. Nothing that's really going to make a difference, right? The little that I have for the multitudes that have needs, I'm, I'm just a drop of water in, in an ocean. It's not how much you have. Rather, the real question is, have you relinquished control of what you have into the Master's hands? Because if you take the little you have and offer it to Jesus, you'll be amazed at what He can do with it. But you have to willingly Offer yourself to Him. That's what this little boy did. Offered up his lunch to Jesus. Jesus can do great things. Verse 19, And He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. Now, again, if you read it in other Gospels, in Mark's Gospel, it says they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. They sat down on green grass. It was organized. It was clean. They did it by hundreds and fifties. <laughs> kind of sounds like a lockdown situation, right? You can only gather by fifty. <laughs> So, but they organized, and this way they could, they could reach everybody and not double up, right? If it's just a scattered crowd, you might offer food to the same person 10 times before you get to the end of the line uh, or, you know, the end of the crowd. So they had to organize. Gentlemen, when you're setting up a church, get organized, and don't be afraid to ask for help. Jesus did not organize all of this by himself. He told the disciples what to do, and then they went out and said, okay, you guys sit here, you sit here. Don't be afraid to delegate. That's something that I've had to learn, and I'm still learning this as time goes on, but I've found that most people are very honored that you reach out and ask for help. A lot of people are really itching to get involved, so don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel as if you have to do it all. Offer somebody else a chance to help. Verse 19, he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and break. Uh, this is one example of praying over the food before you eat, right? He's, he's asking God to bless the whole meal. He blessed and he break. So in order, in order to be used of God, God blesses you and then he breaks you. 
you see. You say, I want to be blessed. Okay, the, the blessing gets followed up with a breaking. Now again, I'm just giving you some practical thoughts here, but he blessed and he broke and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. You see that delegating there. Verse 20, and they did all eat and were filled. Now, if you think about this in terms of salvation, Jesus is the bread of life. He offered himself for the world, but then he tells his disciples, go and give this bread of life to everybody. Share it. Share the message. And when you eat the bread of life, you are fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. You are complete in him. You're filled. They did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. Isn't this something? When you come to Christ, you lose your life for the gospel and for the Son of Man. You say, I am not worthy. I'm, I'm a sinner. I have nothing that will impress God. And you come to Christ and you leave the old life behind. You think, I'm, I'm losing. No, no. You are going to get so much out of that transaction. You're going to get much more than you started with. You lay down your life. You humble yourself at the foot of the cross. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's, it's a wonderful transaction. You're going to end up on the plus side. They certainly did. Verse uh, 21, And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. So when we talk about the feeding of the 5,000, it's a misconception to think it was 5,000 people. It was 5,000 families. We're not exactly sure how many people there were. Uh, men and children, you're, you're talking, let's say every husband has a wife there. That may not have been the case, but uh, a husband, a wife, and then children, two or three kids per family. I'm, this could be 10, 15,000 mouths to feed. So this was a great miracle. Five loaves and two fishes, that, that's incredible. Now, there are certain uh, other truths that you can learn from this story. And this said so there might be even more to it, but this might be why God included it three, or, uh, in all four Gospels. Sorry, Number one, there's a theological truth that you can dig from this. Jesus is connected to God's line of verifiable truth. When God began to reveal truth through Moses, right? He can, he, Moses delivered the message, but then God did a mighty miracle. Among these miracles... Moses fed a multitude, right? There was manna in the desert. And I say Moses, but you understand, he was just the vessel that delivered the message and that God kind of worked through at that time. Uh, also, the people demanded flesh, Numbers chapter 11. And Moses said, where am I going to find enough meat to, to feed all these people? And God brought the quails. So God proved that he was the true God and verified his message with these mighty miracles, feeding a multitude out of seemingly nothing. Uh, this, was, this also happened with Elisha. Uh, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, if you would write that down. Forgive me, did I mention the attendance code earlier? Deuteronomy 29, verse 29? It just came back to my mind, so sorry if I already did, but uh, yeah. So Elisha, uh, the prophet Elisha, he also had a very similar situation where people brought him a little bit of food and he said, give it to the multitude. They said, it's not going to feed everyone. He said, don't worry, go ahead and start handing it out. And sure enough, it fed everyone there. So it's, it's a smaller scale, but same principle as what we read here. But we can see the law and the prophets. God verified his truth. He verified that this man is speaking on my behalf with this mighty miracle of feeding the multitude out of seemingly nothing. Jesus, his ministry, his message was also verified with the same uh, type of miracle. So that theological truth is there. Number two, there's a prophetic truth, I believe, embedded in this. The Jews that will be hiding in Sila Petra in the days of the tribulation, we know about this remnant from Revelation 12. It says God will feed them in the wilderness. I believe that much like He did in the days when, they, uh, when Israel came out of Egypt, God will maybe bring down manna again and feed those people there, or possibly, based on this miracle, take the little bit of food they have and multiply it. But I believe there's something prophetic in this as well. And then the other truth that we can find from this is... A, a, it's a truth about the deity of Christ. Jesus is showing His power over nature, that He can take 
these few elements and turn it into so much more. It links him to, uh, uh, to his creation in, in this, how can I say, in this relationship, creator to creation. He has the power over it. So it shows that he is the creator. Now verse 22, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship, and to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. So Jesus says goodbye to the multitude. Uh, he puts the disciples in a ship. They're heading across the sea. And then, I should say, Jesus is saying goodbye. After the multitude heads off, Jesus spends some time in his prayer closet. Now, you might remember, as I've spoken about the prayer closet recently, it doesn't have to be inside of a house or inside of a room. It can be out in the backside of a a mountain, as long as you're alone. Jesus was known to do this on several occasions, sometimes in a garden, right? We're going to see that later on in Matthew. Uh, It says at the end of verse 23, And when the evening was come... Well, now look at verse 15, And when it was evening. Wasn't it already evening? The evening had come, there's the feeding of the 5,000 families, and then it says, when the evening was come. In order to properly understand this, you you have to see time as a Jew. A Jew looked, right, he breaks the day into two 12-hour shifts. There's 12 hours of the evening and then 12 hours of the morning, in that order. That's how a Jew sees time. But then you take those 12 hours of the evening, if, if we look at like night and day, you look at those 12 hours, he breaks those 12 hours into four segments. Now you can see this in the next couple of verses. Verse 24, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Imagine how tired and how frustrated those disciples were. Long preaching trip, they just got back. Head out for a little bit of leisure. Great multitude comes, preach, teach, heal, feed, get in a boat, storm hits them. Man, they just can't catch a break. It says in in verse 25, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Now notice that fourth watch. Flip over real quick. Look at uh, Mark, rather. Mark chapter 13. Let me show you the four watches of a Jewish night. Now, I, I, I said that there's two parts to their day, the evening and the morning. You get that from Genesis 1. You might remember the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning, second day, and so forth. But then that nighttime or that evening breaks into four segments. Uh, Mark 13, verse 35. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh at even, we would say evening, that is 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. That's first shift. Or at midnight. Midnight is 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. Or at the cock crowing, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. Or in the morning, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So that's how a Jew breaks down the times. So watch, he says. So back in Matthew 14, in the fourth watch, which in Mark's explanation of it, that would be considered morning. So this is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., maybe right about the time that the sun might be popping up, right? Somewhere uh, in that time. Probably closer to 3 a.m.-ish because it, it appears that it's still dark. It talks about the night there. But verse 25, In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Can you imagine how you would react if you saw that? I mean, illusionists and magicians, they try to do it, but there's stuff underneath the water. They've, they've proved all that, but... Jesus is in the middle of, a, of the Sea of Galilee. This, these fishermen, they know this water. And there's a storm going. It's not calm water. There's a storm blowing. And Jesus just calmly walks over to the boat. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, verse 26, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. They assumed it, ha- it has to be a ghost. That We can't be seeing an, an actual person out there. And they cried out for fear. I I don't blame them. I probably would have done that as well. Verse 27, right? Who would see that and calmly say, ah, just a guy standing on the water? (laughs) Nobody, Nobody would react like that. Verse 27, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Uh... 
Jesus understands that they're having a very human moment, that they are reacting like any human being would. He says, guys, I get it, but calm down, calm, calm down. Be, be happy about this, don't worry. I'm not a ghost, I'm not here to haunt you or spook you. I'm not the tokoros, you don't have to worry. Um, you don't have to be afraid, it's me. You know, the Lord will show up at some of the most difficult times in your life and He'll show up in a way that you're not expecting. And at first you might be quite intimidated or scared or fearful of how He's operating and how He's approaching you because He's not coming as you would expect. He's not coming when you would expect. You might have a very human moment and say, oh, I don't know if I can handle this. Just calm down. The, the, the Lord will pull you through this. Now, Peter, ah, you got to love Peter, right? Verse 28, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. <laughs> I've heard a lot of preachers talk evil of Peter here and say Peter should have just stayed in the boat. He was safe in the boat. Jesus told him to get in the boat. He should never have asked to get out of the boat. Jesus did not rebuke Peter for making this request. I would say that Peter had spiritual aspirations. He, he aspired to do more in his walk with Christ, including him walking on water. Let's take this thing to the next level. Let's see how far I can go with Christ. I like Peter's attitude. I like somebody that will, not sinfully, right? Not in a rebellious way, but push the boundaries, right? To aspire, to, to, to press toward the mark. Let me learn more. Let me, more about Jesus. If I got to get out of my comfort zone, out of my boat to do that, then so be it. Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. So is Peter trying to verify that it's the Lord? Yeah, a little bit. But it doesn't come across in that Peter's, um, I want to say of a doubtful heart, right? It, it, it almost, it, it comes across to me like he's excited for this opportunity. He's asking for something great. Verse 29, he said, come, right? So Jesus didn't rebuke him. He said, come, go ahead. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. So there's only two people in history that have done it properly, right? Jesus and Peter. That's quite a category to be in. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried saying, Lord, save me. Now listen, Peter got his eyes off the Lord and onto the water. Everything blowing around you, the storm going on, COVID-19, lockdown, economic shutdown, racism, hatred, drugs, debt, divorce, it's all piling around you. And if you get distracted and keep your eyes on that, down you go. You've got to keep your eyes on the Lord. Dr. Uckman used to tell us all the time, the hardest thing to do in the Christian life is to keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. He's absolutely right. The devil will do whatever he can. When somebody is drawing nigh, going deeper in their relationship with God, going farther than ever before, the devil will do all he can to distract you and get your eyes off of the prize. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand. Look at that. That's mercy. And caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now, the doubt was that after he started walking, and he, you know, then he, he looked at the, the boisterous wind and, the, and the, the seawater slapping up against his face. That's when the doubt came in. That's why I say back in verse 28, I, I don't think it was so much a thing of doubt as much as it is excitement. Hey, if this is the Lord, I, maybe I can get to come out there with him. Verse 32, and when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Can you imagine this big storm? And as soon as Peter and Jesus get back into the boat, whew, calm. Again, showing his power over nature. Verse 33, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now, it's not that the disciples didn't already believe this. I, I think that they did. Um, however, this is just further proof, further confirmation Man, you have got to be more than just uh, some human being that came from down here on, you know, on the earth. You did come down from heaven. You are the Son of God. It, just another proof 
for that um, belief. Now, verse 34, And when they were gone over, so they made it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they were come into the land of Gennesaret. Now, you can just make a cross-reference. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. The Sea of Galilee is also known as the Lake of Gennesaret. Right? That, that sea has different names. Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, Lake of Gennesaret. Gennesaret was a city on the upper east coast of the, the Sea of Galilee, if you will. So they, they'd gone from west to east, and they landed in that area. Verse 35, And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Now, this is Matthew again giving us kind of a wholesale explanation of what happened in Gennesaret. Right? He doesn't give us all the details and individual stories, but he does. What he, what he gives us here is kind of setting the scene for what we're going to talk about next time in Matthew chapter 15. It, it, there's a conversation that takes place between Jesus and some of the scribes and Pharisees. So it's just showing us uh, where Jesus is at, what he's been doing before this conversation with these religious leaders. But there is something else that you can, that you can pull out of that last section. The miracles and the things that he's doing here, we've read about in other places in Matthew. We don't need to comment a lot on, on that. But it's, what's interesting is that when Jesus got there, it says the men, when they found that out, they, they brought the diseased to Jesus. A lot of these, he, these faith healers, they bring their own sick people with them, right? It, they come to town, they get everything set up, and they got their own people. I, I've, I've actually talked to them myself that said, yes, we had a plan prepared that I would come forward and say this was the problem. I don't think all of them are deceivers, but a lot of them, right? They bring their own and they rig the whole thing. I think Matthew gives us this story in part to show us that what Jesus was doing was not rigged. When he got there, the people came out of every city, all these places, bringing the sick. Jesus couldn't have planned that out, prepared that. These people brought genuinely sick, Jesus healed them, and now Matthew's recording it so that people could go back to that area and say, listen, was this a genuine thing that happened? They could follow up and verify that miracle. All right, we've made it to the end of chapter 14. That's where we're going to stop for the night. I will um, restart the video as I always do and see if there's any questions. And if we have none, then I'll have a word of prayer and we'll close. Oh, wow, there were more. Okay, no questions. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the, your help this evening. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way that you manifested yourself while you were here. So many different ways. Feeding the people physically, feeding them spiritually, showing compassion for their physical problems, Lord, healing them. So many ways you showed us who you truly are. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a little bit of Peter's attitude. Lord, to step out of the comfort zone of our boats. Even though times might be difficult, help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on You and to, to do what <laughs> nobody else would think possible. But Lord, we understand that if You command it to be done, if You tell us to get out of the boat, if You allow it, we can do it. Help us, Lord, help us to stay focused on You, to set our affections on things above. I pray You prepare our hearts for tomorrow. Help Garrett and Lord... We, we so enjoy hearing from you. Please do that again tomorrow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.